0: We cannot trust ourselves with sin. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, gives a very direct word concerning sin. In fact, he gets very, very specific about what sin is and the sin that he wants them to avoid. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, am I holding specific sin in my life that I need to give over to the Lord? If you have your Bibles, if you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, and of course it will be on the screen. The context of this passage of Scripture written to the church at Ephesus is that they were dealing with tremendous temptation all around us. In fact, there will be two Particular specific sins that we're going to look at here immorality and idolatry or covetousness, and it was literally permeating the city of Ephesus. You couldn't go a place in Ephesus that you didn't see a temple to some god, and they would be encouraged to worship those gods. And so the folk, the Christians in Ephesus, were literally just encountering false gods and temples to false gods everywhere they went. Secondly, when it came to immorality, it permeated. The city of Ephesus. As we've seen in recent weeks, there was this huge temple in Ephesus to the goddess Diana, and there was cultic prostitution that was carried out in that temple. That literally was the act of worship that they followed there in Ephesus. And so they were just inundated with this everywhere that they went. And the temptation was to fall back into that. The temptation was always right in front of them to fall into this. In fact, the temple itself was supported through the cultic prostitution and what they charged for it. And so in the midst of all of this temptation that literally permeated the culture and the atmosphere of Ephesus, Paul writing to the church there has to get very, very specific. You know, it's always easy, as I said to you last week, to repent of sin in general, generically. It is something else to deal with it specifically. Satan will always have the victory in our lives when we talk about staying away from sin. He will begin to lose ground when we get specific about sin because he is always specific. He always has a definite place or places in our lives where he wants to draw us away with temptation, where he wants to defeat us. Strongholds of sin in our life are always strongholds that have specificity to them. Those areas where we're most likely to fall, where Satan knows we've got a weakness and he works his way into it. And so what Paul is doing here in the fifth chapter is he's addressing these folks and he is saying to them, listen, these are some specific sins that I'm going to identify that permeate your culture. It's in your home. It's at your job. It's all through the city. You can't walk anywhere in this city and not come up against it. I know this is what you're facing, but you've got to avoid it. Now, in this chapter, chapter 5, he begins by saying, I want you to be imitators of God. He says, I want you to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and I want you to imitate him. He says, you are beloved children. In other words, you are the object of God's love. He loves you. He cherishes you. He holds you to himself so you can rest and you can walk and you can live in the security of knowing that you were loved by him. And out of that, I want you to imitate him out of the security of God's love for you, the presence of God's love in your life. I want you to imitate Christ and walk in the same love, live the same love, the same kind of commitment that he has to you. I want you to have back to him and to other folks. And then he goes on to say, starting in the third verse, that if you're going to do this, you have also got to imitate him by avoiding some sin. And this is what he identifies. And what he identifies would have passed as love that back in that day is it often passes as love in our day. You know, everything that God puts out there, the devil's got a counterfeit for. Everything that the Lord puts out there, Satan has got a counterfeit for. And so he identifies that beginning with verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. And that phrase, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. We're going to come back to that, but that is a sort of the hinge on which this instruction literally moves. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, my sermon outline is contained for you in your Rocky Mountain connection. so I invite you, if you will, to follow along with me as we move through this passage together. Now, Paul says, I want you to stay away from the following things. You are to avoid these, stay away from them. Don't try to tantalize yourself with them, get out there a little bit. There are sins, folks, that all sin in general, but this particular that we just cannot try to see if we can play with it a little bit and hope we don't fall in. He's saying stay away from this. Verse 3, he identifies it, first of all, as sexual immorality, which is a general reference to all forms of sexual sin. Any type of sexual contact outside the bounds of marriage is what he's addressing here. Now, verse 3, he speaks of imperialism or covetousness. And the idea of the Greek words that are used here speak of immoral thoughts, passions, fantasies, or ideas. The idea of the covetousness there is literally greed for someone else's body. You see, greed works hand in hand with impurity because lust is fed by greed. I want it. I got to have it. I become obsessed with it. And when the more of that obsession overtakes us, we will be willing to hurt whoever we've got to hurt and don't really care that much about who we hurt in order to fulfill and get what we want and what we are craving. Notice verse 3. He says, These things must not even be named among you. He's saying it must not even be present. should be no sign of them. They are to be foreign to us. Now, again, they are living in Ephesus They walk out the door and it's all over the place. I mean, you you walk out the door and you look up to the temple. You can't help but look up to the great big huge temple to Diana and you know what's going on in that temple. You know why people are going up there. You know what they've done is they're coming back from it. You know the folks that you work with, what they're participating in. No doubt when they went to work, they were hearing this talked about, discussed about, laughed about all of the time. You knew that this was just permeating every part. If you were living in a home with folks who were not followers of Jesus, as many of these Christians were, they were listening to this. They knew when everybody was going to the temple and what they were going to be doing when they got there. And so he says, this isn't even to be named among you because you're living by God's standard. You are not living by the world's standard. And because it's his standard, he says, it's not even to be named. It's not even to be present among you. Notice verse 3. He continues... He says, it must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Now, the word saints there, it's interesting that he identifies these believers as saints because the word there means holy ones. Now, we think of holy sometimes or being a saint, and we say that's impossible. We even joke about how no one could be holy enough, et cetera, et cetera. or I'm not a saint, I'll never be a saint. It's a total misunderstanding of the concept of what he means by saint and what it means to be holy. Two basic ideas that work hand in glove as to what it means to be a holy one or to be a saint. It's not that you get canonized or anything, okay? It simply means this. Number one, I separate myself in my mind and in my actions from this world's standards, this world's thinking, and the way this world operates. The culture of this world is not dictating to me how I live. The culture of this world is not shaping me and molding me in the way that I live, in the way that I think, in the way that I carry out my life. So I am separating myself from that. I am separating deliberately when I walk away from it. I am separating it conscientiously as I make that separation from this world, how it thinks, how it acts, etc. And this world is not setting the standard for my life. But please follow me on this. Being holy is not just about separating from the world. If that's all we do, we're going to end up going right back and just messing up twice as bad as ever before. The other idea is that I'm separate from the world so I can be committed and sold out to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that means that Jesus Christ is the Lord of every part of my life. He is Lord of my thought life. He is Lord of my actions. He is Lord of my relationships. He is Lord of my secret life. He is Lord of my public life. Jesus Christ is Lord of every aspect. He has the right to walk in to every part of my life. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. All of you, when you go home today, if you're like me, etc., you've got a house that you're walking into or an apartment, townhouse, whatever, and you've got certain parts of that house that pretty much, if anybody comes into your house, they see it, they walk into it, the entrance for you, the living room, the kitchen, whatever, and so we've all got those parts of our house that, you know, they're pretty much stay ready for someone to walk into, but all of us have probably got some parts of our house that, you know, aren't exactly open for everybody to come into, you know, we usually have a closet or two there that we just sort of thrust stuff into. And uh, that's sort of the, the secret place there in the closet, or there's the basement, etc., where we thrust stuff into that basement. Uh, but we've all got some places where, you know, we don't want the folks, just everybody to come in and see this stuff. There's are sort of the hidden places. If we're not careful with our lives, that's what we do with Jesus. We say, Lord, you're welcome into this part of my life, and you're welcome into this part of my week. And you're welcome into this part of who I am. But Lord, uh, there's that closet in the back of my life where I got some secret stuff that I enjoy. And uh, you're not welcomed into that area. We'll have a great time out here in the living room of my life, but that closet in the back is to me. And that room over there, that's the one I retreat to when I want to have some fun, when I want to do my thing, Lord. And uh, you just know that that's off bounds. What Paul is saying here when he says, it must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, is he's saying Jesus is Lord on Saturday night as much as he is Sunday morning. Jesus has to be Lord of your life. In every part. There are no secret places in our lives that we're hiding stuff from him. Jesus has to be Lord of every part of your life. You can't have this stuff that's, you know, sort of hidden. The question for us is not, how far can I go and still be okay? The question is not, how far can I go and still be okay? It is rather, how close am I living to Jesus? That's the question I have to ask. Every day, how close am I living to Jesus? You see, so often the game we want to play is, well, I can just take a step over here and a step over here, and I can get right here to the edge, and I'll be okay. I can look at this just a little bit. I can listen to this just a little bit. I can step over the edge over here just a little bit, and it'll be okay. But that's not the question. The question is not how far am I going and getting away with it, The question is always, how close am I living to Jesus? That's what Paul's driving at when he says here, it must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And folks, let me tell you what Satan will do. He is crafty. He is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And this is the lie that he will always sell us. If you play with this fantasy in your mind, if you look at this on your iPhone. If you listen to this music with the lyrics that it's got that talks about the impurity and so forth, you can, you can listen to a little bit of it. You can do this, and there's no consequences, and you'll get away with it, and nobody is going to know about it, and it's not going to show up in your life. He's going to tell you that over and over and over again because he knows that he's just baiting us. You know, when I go to fish, I don't stand out in front of the the pond and say, okay, fish, I'm here and I got this hook and I can't wait to get it in your mouth and I want you to jump on this thing and you're going to be my dinner tonight. I don't do that. What do I do? I get a hook and I don't throw the hook out there. What do you do? You put bait on it. What's the purpose of putting bait on it? It's so that fish doesn't focus on the hook. It focuses on the bait. And when he grabs the bait, he gets the hook. Satan plays the same game with us. He'll always bait us into sin. He'll bait us all kinds of places. That bait, though, has always got a hook in it. Remember, that bait has always got a hook. And what happens when the fish jumps on that hook? I start doing what? Reeling him in. Whose power is he now going to be under? My power. What is his destiny? It's going to be determined by me because he is on my hook, he is on my line. And when we take Satan's bait, we have just gotten on his line and he is reeling us in and now he sets the agenda, he sets the destiny and we're in bondage to him. That's why Paul says here, don't even let it be named among you. Now he's going to get real specific here as he moves into verse 4. He begins to move into the area of our speech because so much of what he's talking about happens in the arena of what we say. Verse 4, he talks about filthiness. He says, let there be no filthiness. The idea there is just general obscenity. It is talk, speech, words coming out of our mouth that is degrading, disgraceful, telling dirty stories, dirty jokes, etc. Verse 4, he says foolish talk. That's the idea of having a gutter mouth, or I think the term nowadays is a potty mouth. That type of an idea. And then he goes on, he talks about crude joking. And the idea there is taking a conversation in a direction that is obscene and suggestive. It starts out small, and then it gets coarser as it moves along. Now, why does he identify crude joking? Humor is so often used to desensitize us to sin. Have you ever noticed that when we start laughing about something, it doesn't seem to be that bad? You turn on television and watch what he's talking about here on television or on a movie or your iPhone, whatever, nine times out of ten it's going to be initially cast in terms of humor. Why is that? Because it desensitizes us. We don't think it's funny anymore. If the And if you've got the laugh tracks going, et cetera, et cetera, and everybody's laughing, we just get desensitized. And that's the idea of this crude joking. It desensitizes us to sin and to the seriousness of it and the consequences of it because it's all couched in humor. I've so shared with you before, when I was growing up, my mother had these little sayings. And uh, she just said them over and over and over to me growing up. And I used to think, why do you keep saying the same thing to me over and over and over? And you discover when you get into being a parent that you have to say the same thing 40 million times because it doesn't sink in until about the 39th million time, you know, et cetera. So you just keep saying the same thing over and over and over again. And my mother used to say to me, and the older I got, the more she used to say this to me. She said, son, if you play around at the water's edge, you are going to fall in. She said, son, if you play around at the water's edge, you are going to fall in. And she just just rolled that into my thinking over and over and over again. And, you know, as I got older, I understood what she was driving at. And it's essentially what Paul is saying here. We play around at the water's edge. Sooner or later, we are going to fall in. May not intend to fall in, think we control and make sure we don't fall in. But Satan wants us to play at that water's edge so that we will fall in. Notice verse 4, the last part there. He says, Let all filthiness, foolish talk, or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now, the phrase there, which are out of place, carries the idea of it does all kinds of damage. So he says, Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, or crude joking which are out of place. And what he's trying to say that to us, is that it's out of place because it will eventually do all kinds of damage to us. Now, notice what he follows that with. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. I've read this passage for years, and I always thought it was weird that Paul is throwing in there, but instead let there be thanksgiving. It's almost like he's living in two worlds. He says, don't do this, don't think of this, don't do the foolishness, the, the, the filthiness, the foolish talk, the crude joking, et cetera, et cetera. And then he says, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Why is he saying that? He's not just throwing a nice little spiritual phrase in here to, to make it sound good. Think about the contrast. In lust, my focus is I don't have. In thanksgiving, I'm focused on what God has given. In lust, I want to get what I want. In thanksgiving, I'm receiving what God gives to me. With lust, I am never satisfied. Lust will never be satisfied. It will always want more. With thanksgiving... I am satisfied and at peace. When you and I begin to go through our lives and in our prayer time, thank God for what he's given us and what he's done for us we are going to grow in our sense of satisfaction and peace. You see, lust for whatever it is is always focused on, this is what I don't have, this is what I want to have, this is what I'm craving. Thanksgiving says, Lord, thank you for placing this in my life. Thank you for what you've done in my life. Thank you for what you are doing. Lord, I want to give go through a litany of all that you have placed in my life. Lust is all about me. It's what I want, what I've got to have. It's all about me. Thanksgiving is all about Jesus. Who he is, what he is doing, what he is accomplishing, all about Jesus. Lust, no control. Thanksgiving is about control. I know this sounds crazy, but the more you and I will thank God for who he is, for what he is doing, for how he's working in our lives, you'll be amazed at how much that will help us to have self-control in life. Over all areas of our lives. Lust has no lasting joy. Thanksgiving produces lasting joy. Thanks enables us to focus on the Lord. And it will lead to contentment and satisfaction. When he says there, let there be thanksgiving. Paul is encouraging us. The word of God is telling us. We got to be conscientious. We got to be deliberate. We got to be disciplined to thank God for everything that He is doing and to sort of move through that specifically. Lord, I want to thank you for loving me. I want to thank you for saving me. Let me tell you what self this lusting will do. We get so focused on what we want and what we're craving and what we think is going to bring us happiness and what we don't have and we've think we have got to have, that we begin to totally lose sight of what's in our lives that God has placed in our lives. Have you ever heard people make the comment, I don't understand why so-and-so left their spouse. They're such a wonderful person. They're, they're such a great person. Why in the work will they ever do that? It's because in the lust, they, they stopped looking at the spouse. They forgot they were even married at that point. Why do we look at folks sometimes and we say, how in the world could they take a life that was moving in such a good direction and mess it all up? Because they weren't looking at the life God gave them. They were all focused over here on what they didn't have. And they think if they got it, that would make them happy. And you see, the greatest thing that, that this lust does is we stop looking at Jesus. We don't think he can satisfy us. We don't think He is sufficient to bring contentment and fulfillment to our lives. We don't think His destiny for us is the destiny that's really going to get it for us in life. We lose sight of who Jesus is and all that He is. And so what Thanksgiving does is it gets us back to that place of first focusing on Jesus. And I'm finding my satisfaction and my contentment in Him. And let me tell you this, the satisfaction and the fulfillment and the content that you and I find in the Lord Jesus Christ will never hurt our marriages, never hurt our families, never hurt our children. It will rather enhance our marriages and our families and our children. The satisfaction and the contentment and the rest that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ is going to bring a richness to our life, a fullness to our life that nothing else can bring. Satan wants to rob us of that, but thanksgiving is the way we get to that. And not only just thanking the Lord for what he's done, but thanking the Lord Jesus for who he is. I want to thank you that you love me. I want to thank you that you saved me. I want to thank you, Jesus, that you shed every ounce of blood in your body for me on the cross. I want to thank you that you walked out of that grave three days later victorious, and that I can walk in the victory that you secured for me in the cross and in the resurrection. I want to thank you, Jesus, that you are in my life every day. I want to thank you for your holiness For your power For your mercy For your awesomeness I want to thank you that as I probe deeper into who you are I get a richer experience of who you are And that Jesus on Tuesday You're sweeter and more powerful and glorious to me Than you were on Monday And I can't wait till Wednesday Because there's going to be a richer experience of him Waiting for me there And Lord even in the places of my life Where I don't understand what's going on And this mess doesn't make sense Lord Jesus is better and the temptation that Satan dangles in front of me and says, move for this, go for this, I ain't going to look at that because Jesus in his greatness makes this stuff look like the garbage and trash that it is. I'm going to be obsessed with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, the greatest thing Satan will do to you and I first is make us bored with Jesus. If he thinks we can be bored with Jesus, he's got us right where he wants us because then he's going to start dangling that stuff. But the more we become obsessed with the person and the glory and the holiness and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the less of a temptation that will be. Now, moving with me to verses 5 and 6, Paul gets into some pretty tough stuff here. He says in verse 5 and then into verse 6, he says, Those that fall into this sin have no inheritance. In the kingdom of God. Has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. It's unending separation from God. Eternal loneliness. Hell. He says those who fall into covetousness. And the idea there is that I have fixed my heart and the focus of my life on the creature rather than the creator. Whatever is coming between me and the Lord Jesus Christ is What is going to be that which I am coveting? In other words, what's come between me and Jesus? What's more important to me in life than the Lord Jesus Christ? He says, if you persist in this, which means I don't have any repentance from it, it's basically a sign, I do not know the Lord. Notice verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. The idea of the kingdom is the rule and the reign of God in our lives. In other words, we're not going to know the blessings and the presence and the will of God. For believers, when we begin to allow our thought life and our actions to move in the direction that Paul said they shouldn't go, don't be a bit surprised that we have no clue as to where the Lord is in our lives, what the Lord is doing in our lives, and what the will of God is for our lives. Sometimes, folks, when we say, I don't know what God's will is, and we just walk around all the time, I don't know what the will of God is, the first question we need to ask, is there something in my life that's coming between me and the Lord? Because if there is something in my life, if I am making an idol out of something in my life, if I'm falling into what Paul talks about here, he says we have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. In other words, I'm not going to know what the will of God is. I'm not going to know where the presence of God is in my life. We can't hold this area of disobedience in our lives and expect to know God's will and know God's power in our lives simultaneously with holding that area of disobedience. He lays, verse 6, a pretty strong statement here. He says, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In other words, if we're walking in disobedience, particularly as he has identified it here, he's saying the wrath of God comes upon us. Now, what is the wrath of God? First of all, the wrath of God is an expression of the will and the person of God. When we choose sin, it forces God's hand in responding to us in His wrath. The wrath of God is His reaction to our deliberate choice to reject His commands and to reject Him. It is the essence of disobedience when we make a deliberate choice to disobey Him. Now part of the wrath of God, when it gets to the end of His wrath, is that God literally has places in Scripture where he gives people up to their sin. The worst place in the world is when we have rejected and rejected and rejected the Lord, his ways, his person, and his commands that he just says, okay, you want it, you can have it. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about this way. It's like saying, I want a first-class seat on the Titanic. It's going to look nice, and it feels nice, and I'm on it. But where's the Titanic headed? Eventually to the bottom of the ocean. And when God says to us, don't do this, and we say, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to do it, and man, I'm enjoying it. And God reaches a point in saying, okay, I'm just going to let you live with the consequences of it. We are on the Titanic, and we are headed to the bottom of our lives. And that's the reason when people blow off God forever and a day, they end up saying at the end of it, how in the world do I make such a mess of things? Because God finally says, you know, I tried and I tried and tried, and all you do is reject me, you won't listen to me, you blow me off. So now you're going to get to live with the consequences of your sin. Lust says, I will do what I want, I will get what I want, and I don't care what God says or anybody else says. And God's wrath then is his response to that. Know that sexual sin that he identifies here is never committed in a vacuum. It will always hurt someone, and part of his wrath is the wrath of God because of the hurt that it is causing. It is self-destructive, sin is, because we are distancing ourselves from the Lord. God has built into disobedience consequences. His wrath is the punishment that comes with those consequences. And His wrath is also His way of trying to get our attention, to try to say, listen, this is going to destroy you. This is going to destroy good people around you. I'm trying to get your attention. You have got to listen, and I'm going to step into your life, and I'm going to do everything I've got to do in your life to get your attention. His wrath, he says, comes upon those who consistently reject him. And he says they have no inheritance in his kingdom. Now, I know we live in a day and age where we pretty much laugh all of the, Our culture laughs all of this off, blows it off and says, hey, you know, God's just love, and he's like a great big heavenly Santa Claus, and he never takes any of this stuff all that seriously, and he wouldn't think about punishing you or bringing his wrath upon you, etc., etc. There's one huge problem with that idea. This gets in the way of it. His wrath, as Paul laid out here to the church in Ephesus, is going to come and is going to be there, and popular opinion has no way of vetoing the wrath of God. He does not want to express it. He doesn't want to pour it out. But he says, I will do that if you consistently reject me and blow me off. And part of the reason God is doing that is because he is trying to get our attention and draw us back. To himself. So when you and I begin to fall into sin and this stuff starts taking control of our lives, the Lord is going to forcibly step into our lives to try to get our attention, bring us back to himself, and he will do whatever he has to do in order to do that because he is trying to salvage us and to save us in the process. We cannot trust ourselves with sin. So here's a question Are we willing to take specific sin? to the Lord in prayer and give it over to Him. It's not, again, a question of how far we can go, but how closely will we live with Jesus. Not how far we can go, but how closely will we choose to live with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that by the work of the Holy Spirit of God, Lord, you would invade every part of our lives, the house of our lives. And, Lord, where we've got closets or rooms that are shut off from you, Lord, help us to say, Jesus, come into this part of my life. Come into that closet. Come into that room. Maybe it's, Lord, an area of lust in our lives. Maybe it's an area of an uncontrolled temper. Lord, maybe it's our thought life. Maybe it's fantasies that we have that do not honor you. God, maybe it's something that we are just totally focused on. We think we got to have a relationship, whatever. But, Lord, it's taking priority over you. And, Jesus, it's not that difficult for us to figure out what that is because you're usually standing outside that door saying, let me in. And we're holding on to it saying, no, Lord, you can't come in. Lord, help us to say to you, Jesus, you can come in. And you can be Lord. And Jesus, I will confess to you and I will hand over to you whatever parts of my life that I'm holding back from you, Lord. In some moments of silent prayer, I want to invite all of us to ask the Lord to identify to us areas in our lives that we need to hand over to him. And now I want to invite you in prayer to ask Jesus for a fresh experience of his love and his glory and who he is and what he's got for you. In just a moment, we will sing. And as we sing, I want to invite you, if you've never given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and chosen to follow him, and you want to make that decision today, to walk the aisle of this church, and I would love to pray with you about the most important decision you can make to pray to ask Jesus Christ to become your Savior, your Lord, and to choose to follow Him. If you're a little bit nervous about walking the aisle by yourself, feel free to ask a friend to come with you. Most of the people that came to Jesus, they had a friend that, that brought them to Jesus or was with them when they made a decision. If you feel the Lord's leading you and guiding you to become a part of our church family, we invite you to come. If God's tugging at your heart and working with you about some other decision you need to make publicly. Even to respond to a call that maybe he's giving you to ministry. Then we invite you to come and indicate that. We'd love to pray with you and encourage you. Lord, in these moments now as we respond back to you. Help us, Lord, just to respond in obedience to you. In the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.